Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. All right, this is part two of our interview with Dr. Romani Dravasala. She's an expert on all things narcissism. Find more about her on her YouTube channel or just go to Dr. Dash Romani, R-A-M-A-N-I dot com, where you can learn more about her work on narcissism and learn more about her books, Don't You Know Who I Am, How to Stay Sane in the Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Incivility, and The Modern Relationship Survival Manual, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. So if you like content on this topic, especially personality disorders and relationship problems, difficult people, check out Ars Longa Media's new podcast, Healthy Toxic. That's healthy with two forward slashes and the word toxic. Or even just go to the website, Ars Longa, A-R-S-L-O-N-G-A dot media. Now, first up, our question of the day. A 41-year-old man's brought to the clinic by his parents for a mental health evaluation. He's been unemployed and lives with his parents, having held low-level jobs for only short periods of time. He reports dysthymia and a lack of social relationships. When further questioned about his lack of employment, he describes jobs as beneath him, and that one day someone is going to see how smart I am. When the clinician attempts to question him further around his inability to hold a job, he becomes defensive and tells her that her questions are stupid and asks her why she cannot see how intelligent he is. Which of the following best describes this patient's personality? A. Impulsive narcissism B. Vulnerable narcissism C. Grandiose narcissism or D. Hypervigilant narcissism so the answer here is B, vulnerable narcissism. Honestly, you're probably not going to see this on an exam. Um, the distinction between grandiose narcissism, which is really what's defined and described in the DSM, and vulnerable narcissism, uh, which is a... Uh, uh, kind of a framework or construct that's developed in the psychology, uh, psychiatric literature um, by practitioners, uh, kind of more of a, a conception of how to think of narcissism in other ways than it presents in its grandiose fashion. Vulnerable narcissism you could think of as very similar to borderline personality disorder, although to return to what I said above, um, borderline personality disorder you can distinguish from NPD uh, in that patients with borderline personality have more impulsivity and self-injurious behavior. Cutting, for instance, would be a dead ringer on a vignette uh, for borderline personality disorder. And then it can be differentiated from uh, antisocial personality disorder in that patients with antisocial personality tend not to function within the context of social norms, whereas narcissism, uh, people with pathologic narcissism, are able to do so. Oh, plus um, ASPD uh, has a, a prominent characteristic of 
impulsivity that, that you don't see in narcissistic personality disorder. But all that is to actually bring out a good point because I misspoke and didn't clearly draw the distinction between narcissism as a trait, which is not a diagnosis, and narcissistic personality disorder, which is the diagnosis. But it's worth thinking about this concept of narcissism as a personality trait on a continuum. And actually, um, Heinz Kohut, the um, kind of giant of this field and um, formulator of many of the constructs uh, through which uh, we think about narcissistic personality disorder, made a distinction between healthy narcissism and pathologic narcissism, with narcissism being a trait that everyone has to a certain degree or another. Um, it's the, you know, with personality disorders, it's it's the intensity and severity of expression of a particular trait along a continuum uh, that makes it pathologic. So if you have, you know, way too much of something or way too little of it, um, that's pathologic, which I would argue as well is uh, kind of a validation of Aristotle's point about virtue being the mean between two extremes. Uh, but I won't get into the philosophy. So like other personality traits, narcissism exists on a continuum and healthy narcissism uh, could be conceived as a mature form of positive self-esteem or self-confidence in the words of Kohut. And, and you can see this kind of, I think, more obviously when you contrast healthy versus unhealthy narcissism. And, you know, I will say too, I think narcissist, narcissism, narcissistic, I mean, these are words that are um, becoming problematic and harder to use in a technical sense. Um, people tend to use them pretty freely. And we actually get into some of that in today's interview. But the language surrounding this stuff is, is I would say, not optimal because um, you could say healthy narcissism um, is just basically healthy self-confidence. Um, although, let's just contrast some things you might see in a relationship or at work with uh, healthy and unhealthy narcissism in terms of self-confidence. Someone with a healthy sense of narcissism would have uh, high outward self-confidence that's in line with reality versus grandiose. I'm the fastest runner in the world, uh, but I've never been in a race. Yeah, that's kind of a red flag for a more unhealthy narcissism. When it comes to a desire for power, wealth, and admiration, uh, these are things that people with narcissistic personality disorder, um, those with an unhealthy narcissism, will pursue at all costs, and they will lack the kind of normal breaks or inhibitions uh, on the pursuit of power in these things uh, that you would see in a healthy person who, with healthy narcissism, may enjoy the wealth or power or admiration, but it's a subordinate good to them. Uh, it's not a priority. They're not going to be willing to lose something like a relationship or compromise their values in order to obtain power, wealth, or admiration. Um, and that is a, a healthy feature. When it comes to relationships, healthy narcissism uh, can be thought of as having a real concern for others and their ideas without compromising one's own sense of self. 
um, and not exploiting or devaluing others. In more pathologic narcissism, relationship concerns are uh, limited to expressing socially appropriate responses when it's expedient or convenient. And you'll see, especially in vignettes and unfortunately in real life, somebody with an unhealthy pattern of narcissism uh, engaging in devaluing um, abusive type behavior and even exploiting others with no apparent sense of uh, remorse. When it comes to the ability to follow through, a healthy sense of narcissism is, is rooted in a strong sense of self, a developed sense, a mature sense of self. Um, so a person has values and follows through on plans. In unhealthy narcissism, uh, a person's going to lack values, lack a stable sense of self. Um, they have a chronic sense of uh, boredom, um, and this is why you see them often changing jobs and unable to uh, hold things down as they you know, are continually uh, pursuing exciting experiences. When it comes to the development of healthy narcissism, it requires a, a childhood where self-esteem is supported and also appropriate limits are placed on the child in terms of uh, his or her behaviors, uh, especially towards others. In contrast, in an unhealthy pattern, it's usually a result of a traumatic childhood uh, where a sense of self-esteem is undercut, devalued, um, or the child, for one reason or another, um, you could say a lack of parental solicitude, I suppose, um, the child learns he doesn't have to be considerate of others to get what he or she wants. Like, I don't have to clean my room in order to get a piece of candy or 15 minutes of screen time. But when it comes to narcissism as a trait, just to return to our vignette, um, the answer here was vulnerable narcissism. It's best to contrast that with grandiose narcissism, which is more of the pattern described in the DSM-5. The person with a vulnerable narcissism appears very hypersensitive and gets very defensive. So this patient has these grandiose fantasies. Yes, you know, these jobs are beneath him. Someday someone's going to see how smart he is, but it's the clinician's attempt to question him about the lack of job stability where he becomes very defensive, um, starts to verbally get verbally abusive, calling her stupid, um, and then, you know, just an evident hurt at why she cannot see how intelligent he is. Uh, more characteristics of a vulnerable type of uh, narcissism. So this is kind of misclinically or, I guess, uh, probably diagnosed as borderline personality disorder because vulnerable narcissism uh, as a construct overlaps a lot with it. But patients with vulnerable narcissism present uh, not with the overt aggression and grandiosity that you'd see, uh, but just intense hypersensitivity when challenged about um, core beliefs or um, their symptoms. They're acutely aware of the reactions of the people around them and are often on the lookout for criticisms, real or imagined, that others may have of them. All right, that's it for today's question. We split this into two parts because it was really long. And so now let's get into today's part two. How about this? 
You're a medical student assigned to uh, a six-week rotation um, in surgery, and it's uh, with one attending who you're you get this sense like, oh, this person's a jerk. Um, but then they start, you know, doing certain things like, I don't know, having you go get coffee or um, ignoring you when you're trying to, um, ignoring you, say, in a clinical visit, not introducing you when um, they take you into a patient room or providing feedback or um I, I don't know, not instructing you on how to properly get into an OR without, um, you know, doing something uh, uncouth, uh, as it were. Uh, if if a student starts to suspect something's wrong, mm-hmm. like they're experiencing some of the um, symptoms you describe with mm-hmm. uh, exposure to narcissism, what what would you suggest? Because usually in these cases, it's it's where a person can't really get out you know thankfully it's usually temporary but correct it's temporary like you said it's a six-week rotation so it's a couple of things at that point um i know that in that situation and we see this in grad schools and i i I did my clinical training in a traditional hospitalist sort of setting so i saw what that structure was even though it's a little bit to the side of it as a psych intern i saw how that all played out and i'd say that some people would say I can white knuckle the six weeks, but I don't want to derail years of training. Like I don't want to hurt my position here. I don't want to slow anything down. I don't want, you know, because many times I hate to say it, the deans and the other parties involved will actually join forces with the attending. They're more likely to have that person's back than they are to actually stand instead with the student. Things are changing. Things are changing. I will say we're seeing some of the initial shifts because I think we've seen how the mighty have fallen. Movements like Me Too and all of that have put a lens on this. Now, is it? it are, am I seeing just as many people filing these abuse cases as ever? Absolutely. But I also am seeing more and more people are getting their cases actually heard, but many, many, many are also not. So I think that in those cases, this is where the knowing about the pattern becomes everything because it is then that the person, the damaged person in this equation is the attending the pathetic, power-hungry, weak, needing to, to lord power over others because of their weakness, human being, weak person, to see them as such so that you can then get some distance from it and say, okay, this isn't about me. This is this person and file it away. Let other generations of students know, don't take this guy personally. He's a jerk. Tell other people, don't work with this person. You will regret it. It is not, do not sign up for this residency at this hospital. Like you start creating the chains of information. Now, all the biggest mistake people think is I'm going to be the exception to the rule. I can win this guy over. No, you can't. No one can. That's the, that's the point. So if a person doesn't want to make noise and they just want to slide through, then you've got to understand how's the, how's the pathology and the person in whom the pathology should be housed, which is, which is the teacher, okay, the attending, whatever. That said, I never want to discourage people from moving forward. Some people within their residency programs, they have mentors, or they might even have mentors from back in med school. And I always tell people, have your one trusted person you can go to and say, let me, let me run this by you. Let me play this off of you. I want to hear from you your thoughts about this. And you'll get some feedback, you know, that some will say, go for it. Some will say, don't. I mean, again, I get it. Residents are stretched thin and exhausted. 
And the last thing they may want to do is spend months, if not years, in litigation and in hearings and depositions and all of that. I get that. But I want anyone listening to this to also feel that they absolutely have the right, they absolutely have the power, and they can go ahead. They have the right to do that. Like I don't want them to feel like, oh, these systems are so against me, I might as well not. You should absolutely feel like you can but to also not blame yourself when the the system's pushing back. The system's always push back. You have the right to do it. But if you choose not to, then that's okay as well. But then at a minimum, see that the damaged person in this is the narcissist. You know, like at least push it off on there. And so you can say, I'm going to learn as much from this person. I am not going to get the coffee. I am going to get the coffee. You make your own deal with yourself on what you can endure, but don't personalize it. And that's the mistake people make is that they personalize it. Like, no, this this person is is a junk person in my mind. And so I've had to work with many, many people like this. In some cases, it changed the shape of my career. In some places, you just sort of learn to endure it. In most cases, I try to get out. Yeah. How would you respond um, or suggest somebody responds if um, they're in a situation like very specifically where somebody above them says something abusive, inappropriate, um, something of that nature, uh, something harassing, if you will? Your single most, single most, single most important thing is documentation whenever possible. Now, this is hard if it's a verbal communication, okay? Um, And especially if it's a verbal communication done in private where no one else could hear it in a private office, in a hallway where no one else can see you and whatnot. Obviously, to the degree you can avoid, once once you detect that someone is difficult or toxic, to avoid those kinds of meetings when you can. Try to get as much in writing as you possibly can. Vo- always hold on to voicemail, save email, save text messages. If anyone else was in a meeting, say, you know, listen, I just want to make sure I heard this properly, grab minutes of meetings, anything you can to get documentation. An institution can do absolutely 0% for you on the basis of an allegation. They will do nothing. I promise you that. They'll say, listen, you might have just, you just might be mad at this person. We're not going to pursue this. But the minute you bring in documentation, things change a lot. It is about choosing your battles. Like I said, I wish we lived in a world where a person, when someone's saying this to them, that the person could feel that, you know, again, nothing documented, you and in person, mano a mano, they say something, you say something back. And then that person who's in a position of power, who's now going to punish you for standing up to them, may then start the sequence of punishing you. It happens all the time. Is it fair? No. Are they likely to win? Yeah. And this is where I'm not even going to try to sugarcoat it and say, if you want to try to tangle with one of these people, you can expect that you will get hurt. So it really comes down if the fight is worth it for you in this particular situation. I don't always feel like that's the most morally righteous position that people just sort of are looking out for their own backs, but our systems, the decks are stacked. And I hate to say it, they're stacked in favor of the antagonistic people. Absolutely. Yeah, it does seem that way. And it's really sad. I know there, there's a, an offsided study that about 60-ish percent of medical students or trainees, I think in general, it was med students and residents, uh, report some form of uh, harassment or uh, abusive behavior during the course of their training, you know, whether it's being humiliated in a, in a group, being asked questions or pimped mm-hmm. uh, is the term uh, uh, that's used in, in medical training um, when you're asked questions about uh, you know, a disease or a treatment, something of that nature. And and to me, that's tragic, but it also says something like mm-hmm. why, or it brings up a question, why would somebody who wants to talk down to others, who is less interested in helping and, and gets off essentially on making others feel small, what, 
why would they go into to medicine just because you can do that? There's a power differential, and and I I mean I guess yeah that's obvious why they go in because it's easy to have a power mm-hmm. uh, differential and and um, uh, the 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 question though is like how do these people like get in how do they not get screened out during an interview process um or the people doing the interviews are narcissistic too Mm. yeah that makes sense i mean it they didn't yeah no i mean think about what's required in order to get to med school the person has to have done reasonably well in high school gone to college done reasonably well in college quite well in college i'd even say then have you know complete the mcat take that test do well on that apply to med school, compete with other students to get in, then compete. It's constantly competing. Any game that's highly competitive like that will always favor people with more antagonistic personalities. We do not yet live in a world where we're like, oh, you're empathic. I choose you. Who do you think is the one getting all the straight A's in the Ivy League school? It ain't the empathic kid. I can promise you that right now. And there is a, unfortunately in our society, hustle and narcissism often get conflated. Mm. They're not always the case. I mean, those people with true heart, grit, and hustle they're out there. But I think that what does also happen is that that arrogance still plays. I don't know what's going to happen when this old guard of attending physicians finally all fully ages out and we're left with a more diverse academy of medicine. And I don't know what's going to happen at that point, whether we'll see a settling in. But I do think that the people who creep into leadership in academic medicine, the people who creep into leadership in hospitals, people who creep into um, leadership even in academia, they tend to be personality different than the people who are like, you know what? I'm cool. Like I like what I'm doing down at this level. And it's not, and it's not because they couldn't be the leader. They're like, I just don't need the headaches. And they'd also don't, they're not motivated by the same kind of ego. That is not to say that all leaders are full of ego. There's some really, really great collaborative empathic leaders out there. It's not modal. It's just not. And so you've got to see who if they're making the decisions, they're going to choose people like them. Yeah. I mean, that does make sense. Um, it's just, it's just tragic to me because a lot of us are, um, you know, my generation, I'm mid thirties. Uh, the, I'm, I, I'm hoping that with, um, you know, a greater awareness of, of these cultural tendencies that are negative, um, really taking a hard look at the, um, institutions um, that, that we hold up uh, and the kind of systems that we let perpetuate, uh, you know, these sorts of negative uh, experiences in the, the workplace, mm-hmm. the OR, whatever it is. Um, but I'm hoping it looks like, number one, there are no more scalpels thrown in an OR because that happens all the time. Like somebody throws a, an instrument at the wall out of anger, like, oh, wow, you're an adult um, <laughs> that 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 I tell medical students, you want uh, a real pro tip. Um, think about every other area of life. Like if you go do a delivery or a procedure or something, walk in, right? You make a huge mess. Like you're got uh, you know glove packages open, you know, like all this stuff, and you just peace out. No, don't do that. Like clean up after yourself. It takes like thirty seconds. It's expected everywhere else in life. Mm-hmm. You can't just go in, make a huge mess, and leave. Be an example and and show some respect, and that's part of it. Then too, I would say that uh, I 
I still, I've gone to hospitals in the past two, three years where I walk into the nurse's station and, you know, there's a computer at the desk and someone will get up and be like, do you want this computer? I'm like, what? No, you were here first. <laughs> like, it's, it's so weird how uh, in different institutions, not everywhere, of course, but like, for instance, nurses, what, walk on eggshells around certain doctors. Oh, I don't, Very much so. you know, I don't want to call him at two in the morning because he'll get mad, but like, you need an answer on something. And that just creates this, I'm sure it creates negative outcomes, although I don't know anything about the, the literature on that. Mm -hmm. So, okay. What about the other end of things uh, to kind of conclude this, this uh, section? Mm -hmm. How do you spot a narcissistic doctor or therapist? I would say that it would be someone who, I mean, part of it is energetic, right? You sense this almost like a contempt in their presence, right? Um, they may not make consistent eye contact. They may not seem genuinely curious. Um, they may seem chronically distracted. This is sort of like the, the, you know, the EHR, the electronic health record is in some ways the downfall of medicine. Yes. <laughs> you know, I feel so blessed. My primary care practitioner, he is just brilliant. And mercifully, he's the same age as me. So I'm kind of hoping he stays alive as long as I stay alive because <laughs> he's so great. But I had to go through more than a few to get to him. And what I love about him is he doesn't spend the whole time typing into the HR. He actually looks at me and then he's like, I'm going to just get that in here. And he almost literally says like, and now there's going to be a transition. And it's so respectful. I get it. He's got, he's got to see a trillion million patients, you know, at, at the same, on the same day. But his, his mindfulness around that made such a strong impression on me because more often than not, I'm, I've talked to many healthcare providers, physicians and nurses who spend more time staring at the AHR than ever making eye contact with me, which is unsettling, especially if you're going in with a concern. And so I think that it is, you can, it's a, how, how clipped is their tone? Do you feel rushed in the conversation? Um, are they, uh, do you ever feel doubted, you know, or minimized, trivialized or invalidated? Are you sure? Has it really been that bad? You know, it's not supposed to be this way. I think what it is, you know, so when someone says it's not supposed to be this way, that's gaslighting. I said, I just told you what is, but most people would never, ever, ever dream of standing up to a healthcare provider. As you gave some of the um, health patterns that have more nonspecific kinds of symptomatology, like Lyme disease or many autoimmune conditions, many of those patients get uh, gaslighted by the medical providers all the time because it all doesn't line up neatly. And these are still syndromes we're learning a lot about. And so I think that, and, and with a the therapist, it would be that you ever hear something like, well, come on, is it really that bad? Uh, no. You know what? M middle of the session, throw the money on their desk and get the heck out of the office. You know, it is not the job of a person who's supposed to be a healer or healthcare provider to doubt your experience. The first thing that a healthcare provider should be doing is holding space. Holding space so a person can feel safe, can be open at the most vulnerable time, whether it's, I don't even care if it's a physical exam, you're often sharing things that feel inappropriate to share or don't feel like things you've shared with anybody else. And so, listen, I've had both, personally, I've had both disrespectful healthcare providers and respectful healthcare providers. And the difference is night and day. And I, it's funny you say that, is that I remember I have recently seen a narcissistic healthcare provider and he sat behind his desk. Are you, I, you're, I don't know if you have video, but like sat behind his desk and the legs splayed and like this, arms crossed. And he's like, so what do we got going on here? I'm like, what are we in a bar? You know, I mean, <laughs> so it was very inappropriate, very, it felt very gendered. It felt, you know, and I felt very, very devalued. And it's interesting for a woman my age who didn't even stop to think about like, maybe she's sexually active and I should ask about that. He made assumptions about me. We see this happens all the time with healthcare providers. 
Oh, yeah. Women, patients of color, patients of different ability statuses, uh, pe- patients who um, are of different linguistic backgrounds are often minimized, not asked as many questions. That's narcissistic. Yeah, absolutely. I I recently opened a, a, a level one opioid treatment program. So to talk about stigmatization and the general kind of um, cultural narcissism within medicine, the way patients with addiction are written off, uh, it's it's so frustrating to me. These the, you know human beings who are suffering, we're supposed to be there to help those mm-hmm. who are suffering, mm-hmm. and uh, we write them off because what they, in our judgment, were better than them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I think that's. I think must be some people believe that they have contempt. I think people sometimes have contempt for well, narcissistic people or difficult people yeah. will have dismissive contempt for people, and that. And t- here's the bottom line, and it goes back to what I said when we started this was that. It's interesting. Difficult people may not always get as good health care because people get tired of them. But I think that people who don't hold as much privilege in a society don't get as good health care because there's enough really difficult, entitled healthcare providers who don't give them the time of day and aren't taught to, again, hold space. And that's what this is about, is holding space so people can safely render themselves vulnerable and believe they will be safe. But you know what? I think people instinctively know when they're not safe. And that sense of not feeling safe probably means you're dealing at least at a minimum with a difficult healthcare provider. Is narcissism... more of a temptation in mental health amongst, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists? Is it more, did you say a temptation? Yeah, to, I guess, do people with those traits or tendencies, um, are they more attracted to something like mental health, would you think? I actually think they'd be more attracted to medicine than mental health, to be frank with you. I think medicine still holds more prestige and power in society. Uh, so all yeah. things being equal, to the degree they were adequately prepared. If, they, if you gave them either path, a difficult, entitled, narcissistic person would definitely choose medicine because they'd have more power. I think, though, mental health sadly attracts more than its, more, far more than its share of narcissistic people than it should because there is power in that field. You know, there is the, you're, you know, if you do it wrong, you're telling people what to do. Absolutely. Right, which is an incredibly you know powerful position to be in, and so I think that again, I think medicine definitely sees much more of it disproportionately so than mental health would. But I definitely think we see it in mental health, and I can't tell you how many times I've worked with clients who said I was gaslighted by my therapist, I was invalidated by my therapist. In fact, some therapists would be so um, uh, what do you call it? superior that they'd say, well you know, my life is an example because I've been married for 35 years and I have great kids and my kids are so successful. I'm like, thanks, but this is my dime. I don't care about your life. And what does that leave a client feeling as though they're inadequate and don't measure up? And those therapists see the world through their narrow sort of Volvo driving lens versus that there's this whole panoply of experiences out there. And their job is to learn to be present with those experiences, even when they're discrepant from their own. And, you know, that that some people just don't have that in them. And I got to tell you, just like with medicine, we don't screen for mental illness in this profession. We don't. It's weird. And so, and I'm not saying necessarily, here's the thing, a depressed person can be a physician. Absolutely. A person with a history of substance abuse who's now sober can be a physician. A person with an anxiety disorder can be a physician or a therapist. I don't think those things stop a person at all. I'm going to be frank with you. I think a high conflict personality style is the one thing I say that probably wouldn't work in a physician or a therapist who's doing any good, but good luck with ever getting a legislature to agree on like, hey, let's screen out for narcissism. Never, ever, ever going to happen. And so that's the struggle. In fact, as a funny anecdote, years ago, going back where I licensed, I'm a lot older than you. When I licensed, we had to do an oral exam. 
who had actually literally brought in, be brought in front of into a room. I did too, by the way. You did. Oh, okay, so you were. Yeah, but it was five years ago, and it was terrible. It was an awful experience. Oh, that's interesting. Even as recently as five years ago. Yeah, mine was well, well over 20 years ago. And, you know, we had to do an oral exam. And it was more of a jurisprudence exam, but also a think on your feet yeah. exam. The state of California got rid of the um, oral exam oh, probably about 10 plus years ago. And all jurisprudence is now delivered by a written exam. What I found interesting about it, though, was the, the but, and this is rumored, like this is back, these are backroom conversations, but what they were finding was that more than a few of the examiners in the room were using this test as a place to really screen out loopy people, including very entitled, antagonistic people. Hmm. The California legislature said this was never the purpose of the exam. Now, if you want to go back to the book and change your exam for that to be the purpose, well, that was never going to fly. That they, they would never be permitted under the laws we have that of protected classes and all of that. So they were never going to be able to do it. So by getting, they had numerous lawsuits about this oral exam, feeling that the, some people take it seven, eight, nine times and not pass. But and you can imagine those were also people who were more litigious. Sure. But it really did come down to that when they played the recording of the exam, you know, um, and wrote the transcript of the exam, people would have probably passed them, but the, the, their presence would not be, but they, they would be too bizarre, basically. So we don't have a way to screen for this. And listen, it happens in hiring all the time. You'll bring in an extraordinarily difficult employee because you get all of a 20-minute interview. I mean, people are in their very best behavior. They got the suit, they got the this, they got the bag, they got the whole thing. And how, how do you get to guess that? It, it's there more than you think, but the very qualities that someone like me might smell in someone who's narcissistic are exactly the qualities that 95% of people would view as success. Like a little bit too confident, a little bit too much swagger, a little bit of a too firm a handshake. And hello, Dr. DeVos, it's very nice to me. I'm like, whoa, like, <laughs> you know, slow down, soldier. Like what's happening here? So I think that, that I'm bizarre in my thing. Like, mm, that's, that's, that's a little extra. So um, I think by and large, that's viewed as this tremendous confidence. There's no way to screen out for this you know, unless you're really, really, really eagle-eyed. Well, okay. Let's end with this. Now's the season for uh, residency interviews. Um, so you got all these students trying to decide, mm -hmm. you know, what am I going to do the rest of my life? And uh, pff, lateral movement in medicine after you're locked into a specialty is very difficult. That needs a change too, but another conversation. It's very difficult, yeah. How might people get a sense of whether or not a program that they're going to or individuals they're talking to, you know, might be toxic. Um, are there some red flags you might get on a, a first meeting? I think you mentioned a few already, but mm -hmm. just to, mm -hmm. you know, systematically lay them out there. You know, I hate to say, and I hate to be this metaphysical and strange and saying it, part of it is energetic, you know, I, you know, it would be, um, are people looking at you? Do they seem interested in you when you're talking? Does it really seem like they're biding their time? So you could almost imagine them tapping their toe in their shoe, like, oh, I want to be, be done with this. Um, are they giving you, again, it's the holding space, right? Are they, are they learning about you or are they just yammering on about their program? Um, are they... Uh, are, notice you'd have to actually watch how the room is being worked. Are they giving? Are they giving disproportionate amounts of time to certain kinds of people? 
So like the more confident, brash people, are they getting so much more of the time than anybody else in that situation? Uh, how do they talk about their institution? If you come to XYZ hospital or XY, you have come to the land of the chosen. You're like, okay. Yeah. You know, so that might speak to an arrogance that's institutionally or very few, many of you want to come here. Very few will, because this is where the special come. Yeah, you might want to think, "Mm, what does this say about the larger culture in this place versus a place that might talk more about how can we turn you into the best healthcare providers? We're very, we're, we're so pleased about how we serve this community. All of those things. Listen, some people go in for the prestige. They want to go to the, you know, the top shelf hospital where they can parlay that into the top shelf job or a much more remunerative practice or something. I understand that, but then there's potentially a price to pay. That's why I'm saying about the eyes wide open piece of this. But those are the sorts of things that you will, you know, kind of often see. Well, you see that one person is holding court for everyone in the room. Like there's one person and then everyone else sort of all the other physicians or attendings are sort of like, you know, leaning behind that might speak to more of a hierarchical authoritarian organization of power in that organization. But if you really do need to be, again, at the white glove top shelf place, you've now entered into, again, shark infested waters, that's on you. If you've got a shark cage and you're willing to use it, good for you. You might be able to last and understand, I want to do this so I can parlay this into X, Y, or Z, but you need to go in eyes wide open. You're not going to be the exception to the rule. If people want to open their eyes even wider, where would you refer them um, if they want to learn about narcissism, toxic relationships? I'm going to narcissistically say, please come to my YouTube channel because I have more content. I think those are like obligatory (laughs) jokes, right? In these situations, I... So I am going to be, so I view that as self-advocacy, right? <laughs> but absolutely. And I, narcissism, but I do have a lot of kind, but you know, there's over 9 million videos. You do. And it's excellent. I, I would say you have uh, a number of excellent organized playlists too, yeah. um, to learn about uh, the whole gamut of narcissistic exposure, the mm-hmm. personality disorder itself, things that uh, can be confused or are related to uh, narcissism. It's mm-hmm. good stuff. Plus your books. Tell us about your books really quick. So my books are, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Um, Surviving a Relationship with a Narcissist. That book is much more focused on the intimate relationship space. So this is your boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, fiance, kind of, or even your, your ex-partner. That, that's sort of the, the go, kind of go-to place for that. Don't You Know Who I Am? How to Stay Sane in an Era of Narcissism, Entitlement, and Instability. That book is much more, no matter what kind of relationship it is, it's sort of a primer and an introduction, not only to sort of incivility and entitlement in society at large, but sort of what are the many, many, many sort of defining qualities of narcissism? How does it play out in a wide range of relationships? What does this mean for society? And what can you do as an informed citizen under these kinds of conditions? And so those are the two main ones I've got. For those who want a more academic read, because I know that you are um, you, you, you cater to that, that audience, there's a really wonderful edited book called The Handbook of Narcissism and Narcissistic Personality Disorder. I don't remember the editor's names off the top of my head, but the, um, the, the chapters in that book are really writ- written by the best academics in the field. You know, people like Lonning Stam and Campbell and, you know, oh, Miller, like these are, these, are the, these are the players and draw from Kernbergian, Cohutian kinds of models and really orient you to the history. I think it's a really good book. I, it's a little out of date as academic books can get very quickly, but I, I think it's a great foundational manual. If you really want to understand it. Um, And then, you know, and and beyond that, I would say, then start looking around. There's over 9 million videos on narcissism on YouTube right now. Really? 
Wow. Over 9 million. So you've got to be very, very discerning because there's some people who these videos are basically their ax to grind. They're mad at their ex and they've just sort of turned it into sort of like that. Yeah. And while I hear, I hear their pain, I'm not so sure that they're always guiding other people in sort of into the light as it were. And so, um, you know, I would say that again, please consider my books, consider academic books such as that one. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and sort of get to read even there, there's the Oxford textbook of psychopathology is another great book that has all the personality disorders and really clear chapters on, on those there. Some people may really enjoy those. And then, then I'd say just be discerning. Awesome. I read, I would read Alan Francis's Twilight of American Sanity. I think Alan Francis thinks more clearly on anything written by Francis. He was one of the people who wrote the original 1980 diagnostic criteria for NPD. I've really enjoyed his thinking and writing about this topic. And, um, and, you know, if you really want to go old school, you go back and you read Kohut, you read Kernberg, you read the original writings, because obviously that stuff is gold, but it can be quite technical. And there's a lot of case reports and stuff there, but I, I loved reading all of that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It was so good to talk with you. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Much appreciated. You have a good day. That concludes today's episode. Thanks so much to Dr. Romani for taking the time. If you liked the topic of this episode, you can find more at arslanga.media. There are shows there, Cluster B on the personality disorders, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic, as well as healthy versus toxic. The podcast on all things toxic relationships, what makes relationships healthy and unhealthy. Plus, there's some stuff on like true crime, psychology, and personality one of the best mindfulness meditations from the lead singer of the band Enter Shikari called Here Now Together and a bunch of other stuff too. If you're not already a Boards Insider, go to insidetheboards.com, download our free mobile application for a bunch of different features and then upgrade to a premium account so you can get access to our all audio QBank and study on the go. What's better than driving your car or brushing your teeth while listening to audio-optimized USMLE practice questions from Online MedEd or Exam Circle?